0: Alright, so here's what's going on. Um, we are in the book of Matthew, and we've been going through the book of Matthew for a while. And the book of Matthew was written to people who are Jewish. Alright, it's not it's not racist, you can say that. Um, written to the people who are Jewish. And the, here's the thing. Um, as we've been going through this big, huge 28-chapter book to the book of, uh, book of Matthew, what we've done is we've broken it down in little subsections. And as we've broken it down in little subsections, um, that's to help us understand kind of what's the point of that particular section. So what we're doing today, um, and what we've been doing the last couple weeks, is looking at a subsection, which is ch- chapter 24 and 25. And this little subsection of chapter 24 and 25 is called Coming King. That's what we've entitled it. Because um, what's going on in this particular sec- section is in verse 3, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say to him, hey, could you tell us about, basically they say, could you tell us about the end times? We're going to look at it in just a second, the actual words. Um, and so in chapters 24 and 25, what Jesus does, is starts um, explaining to them how the end times are going to happen. And so the coming king is talking about the second coming of Jesus and the coming king and what it's going to be like. And so that's, that's kind of where we are right now in the book of Matthew. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to jump in, um, and I think what's going to be most beneficial for us as we look at chapter 24, as Chris read, we're going to be picking up in verse 29, Um, I think what's going to be most beneficial for us is if I bring everybody up to speed up to 29. So in about 3 to 4 to 5 minutes, I'm going to explain verses 1 through 28, um, because really, the first sermon I did, which was verses 1 through 14. The second sermon I did, which was verses 15 through 28. And then today, the sermon I do, 29 through 35. It's kind of all big one sermon. It's one big main idea talking about the second coming of, the, of Christ. So I'm going to pray and then we'll um, be looking at that particular section today. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have to gather together around um, your word. I pray that as we study it, uh, there's, there's a real possibility, a real uh, probability even maybe, that w- we study this and we just kind of want to learn the information that's contained in the verses. And not just learn the information, but also um, the God who wrote this particular set of verses. So I pray that you would keep us from just learning information. We know that we need to know truth and theology, and it's good for us to know these things. Um, but theology should lead to doxology, to lead, should lead to worship. And so I pray that as we study these verses on end times and what the second coming of Jesus would look like, um, that we would also consider the God that wrote these verses and that we'll come again consider Christ and how gloriously beautiful he is and um, the state of our own heart in light of his second coming and that we would uh, be led to worship you. We we'll would be led to knowing who, who you are more deeply, and because of that, wanting to give you all the glory that you are due, and give you our lives, our very lives to be used by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so, um, as I've said, the, uh, the last couple sermons including this are really all kind of one big sermon. One of the commentators was saying, Um, from verses 1 all the way to verse 28, which is where we finished off last week, that those particular verses are reasonably easy to understand. And then he says, starting at verse 29, the easy part is over. (laughs) So if that gives us any um, excitement today, we're going into verse 29, where it's going to get really kind of hard and and difficult to understand. Hopefully it won't be too hard, but that's what's been going on thus far. And so verse 29 is going to um, become a little bit more difficult. And so we're just going to take two small little sections sections 29 through 31, and then 32 through 35, and just look at those two sections. But um, before that, before we do that, let's go ahead and and get uh, our bearings and understand what's going on here in in chapter 24 at the very beginning. As I've said before, we're in the life of Jesus in his very last week. This is more than likely about 36 to 48 hours before he's going to be put on the cross. So this is the very last week of his life. And he had just gotten through basically for the very last time having a pretty pointed discussion with the Pharisees. If you remember a few weeks back when we looked at 23, he he excoriated them pretty good. Um, and then at the very end of it, as he's kind of pointing out their hypocrisy in a very very sharp manner, in verse 38 it says, See, your house is left to you desolate. And so he says basically this temple and everything you hold, true and everything you you really live your life for it's all going to be des- desolated one day. it's all going to be knocked down and then in verse 39 it says i tell you, you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord so he refers to that second coming that he's about to have and then in verse 24 he walks out of the temple says jesus left the temple and he was going away and his disciples came to point out the buildings of the temple so why are they pointing out, they're not tourists, they're, they're walking out, there. remember he just said they're going to be desolate and they're kind of walking around, and you said see they're left desolate, but, but Jesus, they're still there, like they're not desolate, there they are. So we're confused why you're saying that. Why are you saying they're desolated whenever they're not, clearly they're still standing. In verse, thir- verse 2 he says, don't you see, um, there's not going to be anything left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So basically he's telling them, this is around the year AD 33, that in the future, which we know now would be A.D. 70, this particular temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So he's helping them all see. It's about to be destroyed. It's coming in the next 40 years. And then in verse 3, however long it takes to, to walk from the temple up to the Mount of Olives, that much time passes and verse 3 starts, which it shouldn't be too long. Verse 3, it says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to, Have what's known as the Olivet Discourse, um, which is just a a big word for teaching. Uh, This is his sixth and final big teaching of the the book of Matthew. It says he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, So, verse 3, the the disciples are going to ask a question. And this particular question in verse 3 is really the impetus or the catalyst or the the reason why chapters 24 and 25 are written. All of chapters 24 and 25 are trying to answer the question in verse 3 here in 24, and they say, um, they said this, they're asking really two p- specific questions. Number one, tell us when these things will be, which is just, can you explain when these buildings are going to be knocked down? You're saying they're going to be desolated, decimated, knocked down, all over. Can you tell us when that's going to happen? Also, the second question they ask is, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the of end of the age? So when's the temple going to be knocked down? When are you going to come again? We want to know those two things, Jesus. And what happened is the disciples had thought that those two things, the the temple being knocked down and Jesus is coming, were going to happen at at a simultaneous time. They thought these things are going to happen at the exact same time. In 24 and 25, Jesus is going to try to help them see that they're not going to happen at the same time. We have the benefit in living in 2013 to look back and say, oh yeah, the temple was destroyed in AD 70, and here we are in 2013. Jesus still hadn't come yet. So we, we we can see that it hadn't that those were two separate events but being in in the year 33 they didn't know that and so Jesus is trying to help them see that those things aren't going to happen at the same time and the way 24 and 25 are structured he's basically going to tell them This is how the timeline is going to happen. That's kind of the first part of chapter 24. The second part of 24 into 25, he's going to do some some parables and some teachings on the fact that they need to get ready for this particular time period. And then at the very end, starting in verse 31 of chapter 25, he talks about that final judgment whenever the King Jesus comes to judge. And so that's kind of the way chapters 24 and 25 are set up. And the reason why they're written is they're all answering those two specific questions. When's the temple going to be destroyed? And not only that, but also when are you coming back? And so what we saw as Jesus started to give some answers to this in verses 1 through 14, he said, Okay, the temple's going to be destroyed and also... I'm going to come back one day, but before those things happen, there's going to be some things that are just going to happen in your lifetime, and not only are they going to happen in your lifetime, but your children, it's going to happen in their lifetime, and their children, and their children, and it's going to happen in every single century, every single generation, there's going to be some signs of the end times, and we can see, even in 2013, those signs are happening. Um, And so he gives us three little signs of things that are going to be happening in every generation. These signs are signs of end times, but they're not like the signs. Like it's really, really about to happen imminently but we still kind of hold to this we know that it's coming we just don't know when those three signs that are going to happen in every single generation are the first one is in verses five through seven where you see he says that there's people they're saying that they're jesus there's earthquakes there's famines there's wars there's nations rising against nations. and so the first sign which affects every single person is that there's going to be great distress and great tumultuous problems you can see here general tumultuous trials and destruction and so um, which just means earthquakes Famines, wars, countries fighting against each other. That's been happening 2,000 years ago and it's happening right now. And he's saying those are signs of every single generation to let you know. The second thing he says, different from affecting the whole world, but the second thing that's going to affect Christians, you can see there in verse 10, 11, I think, and verse 10, that basically in every generation, Christians are going to receive some kind of persecution. And we've, we've known that, that Christians are being persecuted in our day and time. So that's, that's another sign of the end of times that's common to every single century. And because of that persecution, that led us to the third sign, which is that people are going to leave the church. There's going to be constantly people leaving the church. They're going to say, this persecution's too much, we can't stand it, we're getting out of here, we don't want to be Christians anymore, and we said that whenever they do that, they show themselves to have never been Christians. And so as we saw in that first sermon, verses 1 through 14, we said, well, what do we do then? Like, how do we, how do we learn those things about end times, and then how do we apply that to our life right now? Like, Tuesday, I got to go to work, what do I do? What do I do with all these wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms rising against kingdoms? Jesus provided for us a couple applications in verses 13 and verse 14. The first first application in 13 was endure to the end. Persevere in the faith. Continue trusting Christ, living for him, pursuing holiness. Um, Continue believing that he has declared you to be righteous. And since he's declared you to be righteous, then now you can go live this life of holiness that he's already said you've attained. It's about what he's done, not the fact that you have to do it to earn it. That's the first thing. And in verse 14, we saw that the gospel has to be preached to all the, all the nations. So the first application point was to endure. The second, second application point was to finish the task, to tell people about Christ. Here in any nation, ask, ask the Lord, What do you want me to do in regard to proclaiming this gospel? He wants me to tell everybody that's not a Christian and maybe even consider going overseas or maybe even consider, consider sending money or paying for a missionary or praying every day about people that don't know Christ overseas or maybe even going and living forever. Like Those are the things that he wants us to do. And this isn't a, am I called to do this? It's since I'm called as a Christian, every Christian must in some way bring the gospel to the nations. And there's all kinds of ways that we can do that. Like I said, my wife is pregnant right now. We're expecting her fifth. She's a stay-at-home mom. I'm hoping that God's not going to send her over to Egypt and leave me here with the five kids. I don't want her to be a a long-term missionary over there and me stay here. So according to our season in life, uh, it certainly is going to look different for some people. But empty nesters or young marrieds, those kinds of people, certainly it's easier for them to go. Or maybe even families, um, but certainly... Um, those are application points that were directly applicable to those set of verses. Now, those two application points in 13 and 14 are actually the applications for everything. They really are. Um, so what we saw after that, when we got to verse 15, he continued the idea of talking about the end times, talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and also his second coming. I don't really want to re-preach last week's sermon, but as we were doing that, that, there was something I wanted to do. Instead of... as instead of just talking about end times, I wanted us to kind of take one step back and as we're talking about end times, consider the Son of God of whom we're speaking and just be in awe, I mean just in awe of how gracious and how glorious and how beautiful and how kind He is. So as we talked about end times, what I wanted us to do then is just take a step back and just linger at noticing these great characteristics of who Christ is and see his beauty. And as we saw that, not ask the question, what do I need to go do? Which is a good question. We need to do something. But instead, before we run off to that, just look at Christ. Look at his beauty. Look at how glorious he is. Be in all of that and let that, those truths invade our heart, affect us down deep about how glorious he is. And then as an act of worship, go respond. But first, just be enamored with the king. Be enamored with the king. So we saw five things about him that um, should lead us to worship. The first one that we saw was in verse, let me make sure I can find it. Uh, where are we? Verse 19 and 20. It says, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those days, nursing infants of those days, pray that your flight not, might not be in the winter and the Sabbath. So he's talking to them about these futuristic events that are going to be... Um, Tumultuous. They're going to be distressful. They're going to be uh, a time of what he calls in verse 21. There'll be great tribulation or great distress. It's going to be terrible. And when we can see he's describing futuristic events that are going to be terrible. But he's also saying pray that pregnant women are safe. Pray that it doesn't happen on days that are going to be tough to travel. Pray that it's not snowing and wintry. And when we hear that, I mean, why would he tell us those things? He doesn't have to say those things. But as we see that, we can see that there's a deeply sympathetic heart of our Savior towards us. He cares for us so much. He's saying, pray that it's going to be easy for people. Pray that, and be, he says that because he loves, and so, loves us. And so what I'm wanting us to see is, Jesus is not obligated by any means to tell us any of these things in the future. I mean, the disciples asked the question. He could have just said, you'll see, it's going to be good. And just kind of... Let, what, what are we eating for dinner? Like it was, t- it was t- getting towards the end of dinner on Tuesday night. He could have just done that. But no, instead, out of love for the disciples, he wants them to know the, the events, how they're going to unfold, and actually wants them to know how they can have safety in, in things. So we saw just an amazing sy- sympathetic heart, which should draw us to Jesus when we know he's that sympathetic to us. The second thing we saw in verse 22 uh, pray that those days would be cut short. So basically, there's, there's a season of terrible, distressful times. And he's saying, I will literally shorten the days of those times to be a shorter amount of time because I don't want the Christians to have to go through in a long period of time. So he, he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shorten it, which highlights for us this amazing kindness Jesus has towards us that he would even do that. The next thing we saw was in verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand, and I just kind of already said this, but the fact that he would tell us beforehand these things are going to happen just shows us his deep love for us. Um, If my children are playing in the street and I see a car coming, I don't just say, I'm going to let them learn their lesson here. No, out of love, I scream out to them, get out of the way, move, you know, really loud. um, And I get them out of the road if they're on their bikes because I love them deeply. And so as he... Christ, because he's God, able to see some of the events into the future out of deep love. He says, see, I've told you beforehand because I love you. The next thing we saw in verses 26 and 27, which is my personal favorite, where he tells us you don't have to go looking and and little... You don't have to like wander out in the woods and see, you know, is Jesus out here? I wonder if he's here. He's saying he's going to be so powerful. He's going to be so tremendously known. He's going to put on a big display of his power that just as lightning comes and shines as far as to the east or the west. That's the way the coming of the son of man will be. So that second coming, whenever it finally happens, it's going to be grandiose. I mean, just massive. And that highlighted for us this amazing strength and power that he has. He's remarkably strong, remarkably powerful powerful and we paused there we thought is there any trial that we can't go through that our strong savior isn't able to overcome stop and be in awe of this amazing savior that we have the last thing we saw was in verse um, 28 which is a interesting little verse it has, it's, it's a parable of sorts where it talks about corpses and vultures but basically They always show up at the right time. And so Christ and his second coming is going to show up at just the right time. But he hasn't come yet. So we're asking ourselves, why is he not coming? And that last verse shows us this amazing patience of Jesus. That he hasn't come right now, but he's delaying his coming. And in the book of Second Peter, people ask Peter, "Why is he delaying his coming? Why doesn't he come now? And if you read Second Peter three: nine it says that God doesn 't wish that anybody would perish, but he 's delaying, he 's being patient, he 's forbearing. This coming so that more people, will, if he comes right away, then all those people that could have been saved won't be saved. And he doesn't want them to perish and go to hell. Instead, he's delaying his second coming so that more people can come to know Christ in that. And then he'll come, which means these people right here are going to be so grateful that he delayed. He delayed and I got to come to know him. And I get to spend eternity in heaven with him, not perishing forever. And we saw, wow, what patience. Patience. What amazing love that he would delay his own second coming so that more people can meet Jesus. Be saved and not suffer eternal condemnation. So as we saw those things, that was the easy part. So now we get to go into what would be some of the harder parts, starting here at verse 29. So what I want to do here, I've entitled this for all you Lord of the Rings fans, all you Tolkien fans, Return of the King. Um, maybe that's three of y'all, but this sermon is called "Return of the King." Um, now we've got two little sections here, and there's as we're looking at these two little sections from 29 to 35, what's happening, or what's being spoken of, or what's being talked about in these two little sections is the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. And so we're going to have three observations, um, three observations on or regarding the return of the King. There's going to be two in the first section and one in the last. Um, and this is what I want you to see here. Um, verse 29, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, um, as we talked about last week, the word tribulation was used last week. You can see it in verse 21. For, there, for then there will be a great tribulation. And we know, um, as we've studied eschatology, we kind of talked about this, eschatology just means the study of last things or the study of end times. Um, there's been some words and terms and things used Um, in regard to talking about the end. So we're trucking down, this is us trucking down our our timeline, and at the very end of the world, whenever it is, 3,000, 2,500, tomorrow, whatever, in the future it is, the Terminators don't win. Like, there's really Jesus is coming back. So, at the very end, there's there's this particular little time here that's seven years long that's called the Great Tribulation. And at the end of that seven-year period, that seven-year Great Tribulation, there's something else that's a thousand years. It's the thousand-year reign, and it's aptly named the Millennium. And so, that Millennium, because it's the thousand-year reign, is right there. So, we have this seven-year period and this thousand-year period. And as we looked at that, and we know that people that are commentators and theologians look at that, they've termed that seven-year period they've called it the great tribulation and so when we saw here in verse 21 we see for then there will be the great tribulation we're like ah that must be the seven year period at the end of time whenever jesus is finally going to come and yes last week i said i don't think it's that i think that actually it's talking about the that tribulation can also be translated distress and I said, I think that this great distress or great tribulation is actually talking about the tumultuous times of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. And there were a couple of reasons. One of the reasons was for verse 16, um, where it says, um, where's verse 16, if I can find it. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So it names Judea, which is a time in the first century. And also, the other reason was in verse 20, pray for that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. So it's, there's an understanding in Christ's mind that it's going to happen when Sabbath practicing was happening. That doesn't happen now. That has happened in the first century. So this, this great tribulation or this great distress, I think was something that happened in the first century, namely the Jerusalem temple. But now we've come up here to verse 29 and Matthew uses the same, quoting Jesus, uses the same word tribulation again. So we see here immediately after the tribulation of those days. So all the commentators are freaking out and they're saying, which one is it? Is it the the AD 70 Jerusalem temple, or is it the second coming of Jesus, the, the tribulation at the end? I think that this particular tribulation is the end. I've got a good reason why. Um, I think it's a really good reason why, because of verse 27. Like Jesus just got through talking about his second coming in verse 27. It says, for as the lightning comes, the reason, let me just stop, and this is just a, a little note for us as we understand especially difficult stuff. If we're, if we're zeroing in on a verse and we want to understand wonder what he's talking about here. The best thing to do is just go up a few verses and read the context to try to figure it out. That's all we did in 21. We saw 21, we went up and read the context. Judea, Sabbath, that's first century language. That must be first century. When we see here in verse 29, after the great tribulation, we go up and he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, what days are you talking about? Oh, because Matthew didn't have a little page break and write a title when he wrote this. He just wrote, you know, There were no such things when he wrote as these verse divisions. So it just says, for as the lightning comes, so it will be, and it says, the coming of the Son of Man, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Oh, you must be talking about the time period of the Son of Man. So that's what this particular tribulation is talking about right here. Now, let's keep going. It says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give to its rise, to its light, the stars will fall from the heavens, the power of the heavens will be shaken. All this is just kind of talking about, Um, things that are going to happen. It's going to be terrible. Can we make some real decisions on how this is going to be? I don't think we understand um, if those things are literal or figurative or if some of it's literal and some of it's figurative. It's all speculation, really, because it's all in the future. And it's really not the main idea of the point of of the passage. So um, I don't understand... Really, if that's literal or figurative, it doesn't really matter. What matters is verse 30, which is going to get us to our first observation. It says, then, when all those things happen, then will appear in heaven, here it is, the sign of the Son of Man. And then, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And here it is. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So, the first observation that we see, and this is just... I mean, this is painfully obvious. This isn't like, I wonder what the first observation is. It's really, really obvious. Right there, verse 30. The first observation that we see is that there is going to be a gloriously powerful coming of Jesus. At the return of the king, the king will return. And it will be gloriously and pow- glorious and powerful. There's this massive, massive coming. And he calls it actually the sign of the Son of Man. This word sign or semeon is just a presence or an indication of a very big divine power. And the divine power isn't a miracle like in the book of John where he turns water into wine. That, that, that was the sign then. But this sign is Jesus himself. The biggest sign there is. He is the sign. And it's a gloriously powerful coming. And then it says this. When this sign comes, it's right there in verse 30. When the sign of the Son of Man comes, it says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. We should think about this verse right here, this little, this little phrase, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and ask a couple questions. Well, uh, first of all, let's just notice that the sign or the coming of the Son of Man will be so big that every single person in the world is going to know about it all the tribes of the entire earth are going to mourn they're all over the earth so it's not like i wonder if it's just going to happen in in jerusalem and we over here in america like how are we going to know do we need the news to tell us Um, what are they going to do in canada Do they like even have the internet up there like how are they going to find out Um, the second coming the sign of the son of man is going to be so large that every single tribe on the earth is going to know about it that's why it's saying in verse 27, as lightning comes, lightning fills up the entire earth. There's a trumpet call that, we're gonna, that it says it's going to be heard there in verse 31. This trumpet call is going to be really loud. Everyone's going to know about it. That's the whole point he's trying to say. It's going to be gloriously powerful, the second coming. But what's going to happen is that it's going to cause the tribes of the earth to mourn. Hmm. Why are they mourning? What is Matthew trying to help us see when he says the tribes of the earth are going to mourn? Well, all of these verses, 29 and following, are kind of cloaked with lots of prophecy language. There's all kinds of uh, prophecy language. And here, he's actually quoting Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 So, uh, and following. So in Zechariah 12, there's this language that's very similar to what we just heard here when he says... All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Listen to Zechariah 12. It says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on on him whom they have pierced, that's Jesus, we know that from Isaiah 53, "um, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. On that day, verse 11, verse 11, this is Zechariah twelve eleven. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning in hadad Ruman in the plain of Megiddo. Now, I wasn't at Hadad-Megiddo in the plain of Megiddo, but it, I, I'm guessing that it was a lot of mourning, like a whole lot, because he's saying it's going to be greater than that particular day. So the whole point that we're he- hearing here is that there is going to be big weeping and wailing and mourning going on. So we have to stop and ask, what's the mourning for? I think we can all pick out an obvious answer on that. Commentators are trying to help us see that there's there's maybe a two pronged understanding that we can take on this morning. Um, it's not on the screen. The first one is for everybody that doesn't live at the very end of the world. Prior to that, all the way to the first century, when they read this, there should be a part of them that is part of the tribes that would be mourning, and that particular mourning they're saying is a mourning of repentance whenever they read this particular text, so it's not the coming of the Son of God that leads to their mourning, but instead, as they actually read Matthew saying this or the gospel is proclaimed by a Christian and they talk about this coming of the Son of Man, there's a mourning that happens in their heart because they're going to be led to repentance. They're going to realize that they're a sinner and that they have no hope of being saved outside of Jesus. And when they realize that they're a sinner, they're going to confess their sin to Christ and ask for forgiveness. And this, this morning is that they realize just how wicked and sinful they are and that they need Christ and there's a morning of repentance. That's the first kind of prong on the fork of understanding. The second prong is actually the future. That those people that are alive at whatever time period that happens, whenever it happens, um, there's a mourning and all the tribes of the earth at that particular time The second mourning is this, and this one's even more interesting and certainly should give an application point to us who are Christians. The people at the end of time, whenever it happens, the second coming of Jesus, all over the earth will mourn because they have willingly lost, make sure you understand, willingly. They have willingly sinned, therefore they have willingly lost the opportunity for salvation. Because when the end comes, when Christ comes, there's no other opportunity. When Christ comes, they have willingly lost their opportunity for salvation and now what is w- awaiting them is destruction and judgment. And when they see that, they mourn because they know it's all over. And the reason why we know that it's going to happen in every tribe is because verse 14 has actually been fulfilled. Verse 14, this gospel must be preached to all the ethnic. It's happened now. And so now all the ethnic groups or all over the world will mourn those that that are outside of Christ realize that they have willingly forfeited salvation of their souls for sin, for selfish living. They said, we don't want you, Jesus. We want to go our own way. Now here's the application point. When we hear that, first, if you are not a believer, don't live Like there's no Jesus. He's real. And he is coming again. And that shouldn't give us reason to be afraid. But instead, throw ourselves onto his mercy. He's so merciful. When we ask for forgiveness, he extends the most radical forgiveness that you could ever conceive of not only that but he died and took our own punishment and then gives you amazing righteousness I mean his own perfections are then imputed to you it's not like yeah I forgive you wash the slate clean go do whatever you want instead he forgives you and then gives you his own righteousness his own perfection and now in the eyes of God you are considered completely perfect because Christ's perfections have been given to you. That's crazy forgiveness. So if you're outside of Christ, this text should lead you to say, I plead for mercy, Christ, forgive me, and he absolutely will. The second thing is this. For those of you that are believers, when you hear this, that all the nations are going to mourn one day because they've willingly forfeited their chance to be saved, you should not say, that's right, get them, Jesus. I'm tired of them messing with me. They need to do, get what they deserve. That is not the appropriate heart response for us. Instead, when we hear of our brothers, our sisters, our family members, our uncles, our coworkers, our neighbors that are outside of Christ, willingly forfeiting salvation, it should break our hearts. It should double our efforts to go to them again and plead with them. Come to Christ. Repent. So this mourning, I think, even is a little bit of right now, because in heaven we know all of our tears will be wiped away, but certainly there's a sense in which right now there's a mourning our own heart. Save them, God. Save them. Please save them. Because one day they will mourn if they don't get saved. And so a great application point as we read this for Christians is to never be lighthearted about people that don't know Christ. Never just say, it's not my job, maybe they'll come to know him. But instead, take up the task ourselves. Now, I want to take a time out. I want to take a little T.O. here and pause and do this. Um, In this text, what's being described to us are unbelievers that are living their life with absolutely with no concern for God. Do, do you know anybody like this? Have you been around unbelievers? Some of you, I'm sure, are like every day uh, around unbelievers who have no concern of the existence of God. It's, for me, it was especially heightened when I was in college. I went to Charleston Southern at one point, which is a Baptist school, but right before that, I went to see a, uh, U- University of South Carolina. And when I was at the University of South Carolina, this was the heightened of living with no concern for God. Students just... They get away from mom and dad, they have freedom, and they go insane. They just go insane. They live their lives like there's absolutely no concern for the existence of God. And some of them keep doing it, you know, well into their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And Jesus is pointing out this. There are people that are unbelievers that are living their lives with no concern for God. So conversely... We should want these unbelievers that are living their lives with no concern for God instead to be completely aware of the radical forgiveness that's found in Jesus. Just as radically as they're living away from God, the forgiveness that can be extended to them is amazingly radical. So what I wanted to do here is take a little T.O. and tell you an amazing, amazing story that highlights this truth. Um, This is uh, from the book... Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. So it's about marriage, so we're going to have a little bit of talk about marriage. I know, it's good, it's okay. It's a little mushy here and there. But um, l- listen to this amazing, radical story about a man who had no concern for the forgiveness of God because his heart was so hard. And then it, then Christ saved him. Listen to this. One of the more dramatic examples of this principle can be found in Laura Hildebrand's best-setting biography of World War II hero, Louis Zamperini. So as a hero... Name We're just going to call him Lewis from now on because I don't want to keep saying Zamperini. Um, Lewis uh, was a, an American soldier and he was on mission in the Pacific in 1943. His plane crashed into the ocean, killed everybody that was on board except for him and one other guy. And they were in the ocean for 47 days. It says they were, after 47 days, they were floating in shark-infested waters, fending for their lives. It's not like the, the life of Pi. Like, this is much more scary, I think. Um, so, Louis and one other survivor are enduring in these shark-infested waters for 47 days. They finally are, are uh, off the water. They finally get um, rescued, in a sense, but not really. It says, and when they were, they were captured by Japanese soldiers, and then they were put in prison for two and a half years. 47 days afloat, finally get off water, captured by Japanese soldiers, put in prison, it says, for two and a half years, of which consisted of constant, two and a half years, this is, I don't know, I'm not good at fast math, 800, 900 days, Um, days of beatings, humiliation, and torture for that long. At the end of the war, they returned afterwards. Um, The war finally ended, and Lewis went back to his home in America, And he suffered from severe post-traumatic stress disorder. He became an alcoholic. And his wife, Cynthia, lost all hope for their marriage. Just all hope because he was so, um, so down. He was so depressed. He was an alcoholic. It says, Lewis spent most of his time dreaming and planning about the return to Japan so that he could murder the guy that was called the bird, a Japanese sergeant who had repeatedly assaulted him and tormented him every night in the camps. One night, he was asleep and he was dreaming about the bird that was kind of over him. And as he was dreaming, he reached out in the dream to defend himself and he woke up to screaming. He was on top of his wife, strangling her to almost death. That's what he woke up to because he was dreaming about finally getting to kill this guy. And then, um, not long after that, Cynthia, his wife, decided that she was filing for a divorce, uh, that she, she was certainly concerned about losing her own life, um, and he was greatly distressed. It pushed him more into alcoholism, and now he didn't know what he was going to do. He knew that he was, there was a threat of losing his wife, even lo- losing his coming child. He could not stop his alcoholism and his self-destructive behavior. He was tormented day and night by his previous um, life that had happened to him in Japan, and the thought of losing his entire family. Then, one fall day in 1949, the grace of God showed up into his family. I don't think any of us grew up, lived in the 40s, but there was a pretty famous guy by the name of Billy Graham traveling around in America and doing some evangelistic rallies. And it says this, One day in the fall of 1949, Cynthia, his wife, was told by an acquaintance that there was a young evangelist, Billy Graham, preaching downtown at a special series of tent meetings. She attended and she became a Christian, and it says she, quote, Came home a light. Now, I guess that just means came home a believer and really, really excited about Jesus. Um, we don't say that anymore. And it says she immediately went up to Lewis and she told him she didn't want a divorce anymore, that she had experience, experienced a spiritual awakening and that she wanted him to come to the tent meetings and hear the preaching. After days of resisting, he finally gave in. So these tent meetings must have lasted like months or something. It says, after days of resisting, he finally went in. And that night, the young preacher's sermon honed in on the concept of human sin. The fact that we live our lives with no concern that there is a a Savior Jesus and we do whatever we want. And he honed in on the concept of sin. And listen to how hard Louis's heart was. Louis was indignant at this preaching. He said, I'm a good man, because he's comparing himself to the bird, right? He's thinking, well, that guy did all these things. I'm I'm a good man. And it says, as soon as he said this to himself, as soon as he had that thought, he felt the lie in it, that none of us are good, that we're all sinners. And several nights later, he returned again. So these things must have been a 14-night tent meeting shindig. Several nights later, he went and he walked the aisle, he repented, he trusted Christ as as his Savior, and he he became a Christian. Now here's where it gets awesome. Louis was immediately delivered from his alcoholism, but more crucially, he felt God's love flood his life, realized that he was able now to forgive those who had imprisoned and tortured him. And the same shame and sense and powerlessness that had stoked his hate and misery had vanquished from his heart, and then the marriage part, his relationship with Cynthia was renewed and deepened, and they were blissful together. You know, Tim Keller's trying to make us, yeah, marriage, which we should be, yeah, marriage. But this is where it gets, this is, This is where it gets the best part. I wrote here, best part, and put a little arrow. It says, in October 1950, listen to what happens here. This is remarkable. In October of 1950, Lewis got on a plane and went back to Japan. And all those plans that he had of finding those guys, it says he went back to Japan and he got an interpreter and he went to the prison because now that the war was over, those soldiers were actually in prison. He went to the prisoner where all the former camp guards were there now imprisoned. And he spoke to them about the amazing power of Christ's forgiveness that had happened in his own life. And now that he was actually able to extend to them and in the prisoner's shock, Instead of the chokehold, he embraced them with a hug and a loving smile as he told them about Christ. That's what this radical forgiveness can do to a heart. So when we say, if you're living a life with no concern about Jesus and you think, yeah, I don't want to do that, it's not going to do anything. This forgiveness found in Christ is unlike anything we've ever heard. So when we hear of people mourning, it's because those that are are Christians are so aware of what Christ can do for our hearts. We're so aware of what we've been forgiven. And we want people to experience this true forgiveness which changes the course and trajectory of their entire life. And now they will spend eternity in heaven and not in hell. So there's a mourning in our hearts that goes on. So that's the first observation is there's this amazing Savior. He's coming, he's powerful, and he has amazing power to forgive. The second thing that happens, the second observation is right here in verse 31. The first one was that there's a big coming of Christ. The second observation is that there's people that are his that he's going to do something with, namely protect. Look what it says in verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will, here it is, gather his elect from the four winds and from the end of the earth to the other. Don't get tripped up on the word elect. We can talk about that another time. But this just means the people that are, that, are, that are Christians. He wants to and cares for deeply. He has a deep love affection for those that are Christians. And he doesn't want that they're going to experience sufferings and persecution. So it says, when he comes, he cares so deeply that he's going to send out his angels with a loud voice and trumpet call. And they're going to do this, this gathering of the elect the gathering of his own people. Now, this particular verse, 31, has a parallel in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17, which I want to I want to read it to you just so you can have a little bit of uh, understanding. The Thessalonians were like all eschatology. They're like, give us all the end time stuff. They're all about it in Thessalonica back 2,000 years ago. And so Paul, he's writing Thessalo- Thessalonians here, and he's trying to explain some of these things. And we're going to jump in on the conversation in chapter 4 verse 14 where Paul is talking about this, uh, this angels coming and Christ coming and trumpet blasts and the gathering of this elect here in verse 14. What I want you to know is whenever Christ comes for that second coming, kind of behind him are all the people that have died already uh, in Christ. So those that, that, have already been, that have already died, they're coming too. It says it right here in verse 14. It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God, here it is, when he comes, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's not like they took a nap, like they're dead. That's what it means in fallen asleep in, in old language. Um, so. We have this gloriously powerful second coming and kind of walking with him or coming with him are all the people that have died in Christ. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. And this is where the doctrine of eschatology or the doctrine of last things kind of starts running into other doctrines, one specifically called glorification, which just means that our bodies are going to be made like Christ's body. In this verse 14, when he's bringing all those people, their bodies have not been united. So it's just kind of a bunch of souls coming with him. I have no idea what it's like We don't know. So, Jesus is coming, and here in verse 14, you've got all these other people, and it says their souls. It doesn't say that, but we are going to insinuate that because we're going to see it from verse 16. It says, verse 13, it says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, so when he comes, there's also going to be people down on the earth that are Christians, and they're going to see up there, they're going to see Jesus. Here's the glorious coming. We're going to be gathered up with Jesus, and all those other people that have been Christians that have died are going to be there, and we're all going to be there with Christ in the sky, and that is going to be a glorious promise that we can look forward to, which gives me great hope for living today. And so it says right here um, in verse 13, for this we, I'm sorry, 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They're going to be up there first, and then we're going to come up there to the sky with him. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel with a loud trumpet of God. That just sounds like verse 31, like we just read in Matthew. And it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, To meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. And so here we have, at the very end of 16, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead in Christ, their bodies are still in the ground, but their souls are coming with them, it says. So as their souls are coming, the bodies are going to rise. There's going to be this glorious putting together of, the, of back of their soul and body. And now they're in their glorified body, much like Christ's resurrected body. And those who are here are going to rise up there with him and there's going to be this glorious gathering of all the people of God there in the sky. I right, we'll just stop there. And here's the second observation is this. The r- remarkably loving rescue of the elect or the mar- remarkably loving rescue of the people of God Christ cares for them deeply and he wants there to be a clear display of his love and he's going to rescue them. He's going to pull them out and there's going to be the final second coming where we'll go into the end. Now, here's the question is when we look at this and we see the second coming of Christ and literally this gathering up of the people of God from the earth, there's been theologians and commentators who are trying to figure out on the timeline of this when's that going to happen remember i talked to you about this little seven-year tribulation that's right before the thousand-year reign we have this little seven-year tribulation there's all kinds of views but maybe the 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 most common two views about this seven-year tribulation is that jesus that that gathering is either going to happen at the very beginning or it's going to happen at the very end there's a mid and there's even a no but the most common two views are the beginning and the end and easily named people that believe that it's going to happen the rapture this is also kind of known as the rapture this gathering of the elect the rapture is going to happen at the beginning it's known as pre-tribulation that's really easy and if people believe it's going to happen at the end it's post-tribulation so let me explain what i mean and how they get to that conclusion and then we'll keep going this is just some eschatology teaching for you um, revelation three ten. we know Revelation's kind of all about end times. Revelation 3.10 says something along this lines. It says he's going to keep you from the hour of trial. So when it says he's going to keep you from the hour of trial, the people that believe in pre-tribulation, since they think the tribulation is a really awful, terrible, horrible seven years to live in, we know that the Bible says it's going to be tremendously awful, like going to get increasingly, increasingly terrible to live in. No one wants to live in that. I mean, wants that hands down right no one wants that so some people say well revelation three ten says he's going to keep us from the hour of trial so in order to keep us from the hour of trial he's going to come down at the beginning of the tribulation and gather us all up and it, we're just going to be gone and as dc talk says you've been left behind if you're still there there, there you are you're, you're stuck there um that's one view the second view is Uh, what's known as post-tribulation, which is instead of coming at the beginning, he's going to come at the end. This is the view that I hold, um, and I'll give you a reason why. There's lots of reasons, but I'm just going to give one. I don't have time. Um, I think that we're all going to go through the tribulation, and we don't really know when and how, but we just know it's going to be the end of the tribulation when Christ comes. One of the reasons why, among many, uh, Matthew 25, which we're going to get to, but in 25, verse 6, it says um, in this parable, But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. This coming out to meet him in 25.6 is another place in Acts 28. It's very similar to the idea of Luke 15. You know, in Luke 15, the prodigal son, the father sees the son way out there, and he runs all the way out to come out to meet him. But this verb, come out to meet him, has a very specific use. When you come out to meet him, you don't go out there and you don't say, oh, where are we going? Let's go out to, you know, Shoney's or something. Instead, the coming out to meet him is when you come out to meet him and you're there with him, you say, okay, here we are. Now we're going to go back to where I was. And so in the same idea of this meeting and being called to in the sky, Christ is going to come there. He's going to call us to come out to meet him. And when we're there, then we're going to go back to where our home was and he's going to come with us. That's how I take it. Um, there's many other reasons, but that's, that's at least one. Um, and so I think that it's going to actually happen at the end where we're going to have this great gathering and we're going to come out to meet him and we're, he's going to come back with us as a guest back to the house which he actually is the king of, of earth. So the point of this whole idea of this great gathering or this, this uh, gathering together of the elect in the sky is this, to remind us that we have a savior that loves us and that rescue is coming one day. No matter what you're going through, no matter how bad your situation is, he's comforting Christians and saying you have a reason to persevere. Rescue's coming. It's coming. That is great reason to keep pushing on. Now the third one is this. The third thing is in verse 32. So we've seen the first observation, the gloriously beautiful coming of Christ. The second one is the. The beautiful gathering of his elect or whatever the words we use. Remarkably something. Um, The third one is in verse 32. Uh, From the fig tree, learn its blessing. The its, by the way, is the second coming of Christ. That's what we're talking about here. From the fig tree... Learn its lesson. So he's looking at a tree, and he's going to use an everyday thing to help them see how, how you, I want you to understand the second coming. When you look at the fig tree, it says, as soon as its branches become tender, it puts out leaves. You know that the summer is near. So there's a fig tree. The twigs are starting to get soft. Leaves are coming. It must be summer. Yes, summer. So he's saying, as soon as you see that, you know that the time is there. And in the same way, verse thirty. 33 so also when you see all these things you know that he's near at the gates so as soon as we start seeing these end times things happening these things that he's been talking about all along this coming of the son of man the the trumpets the great clouds the the darkened sun the the moon the stars all the okay the end is near now we have an idea that it's about to come so the reason why he's telling you that is he's saying look at the fig tree don't like say oh there's a fig tree and then just go do whatever you want in the same way, you should be ever watchful and ever ready watching it, seeing if it's going to happen. And that's the third observation. Not stare at fig trees, but instead the point of what he's trying to make, which is this. Be, there's a necessity for Christians to be ever watchful and ready for the second coming. Be ever watchful and ready. So let's just make it really easy. Brass tacks. What do you want to be doing when Jesus comes? He's telling us to be ever watchful, ever ready. Um, So like always be constantly knowing that he's about to come. If we're doing that, that means that we're living in such a way that would glorify him. We're asking ourselves the question, what do I want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Do I want to just be off, really good at things that don't matter, doing whatever I want, living selfishly? not trying to make disciples, not trying to reach people, not caring about sin in my life, or, as he's telling me to be ever watchful and ready, pursuing Christ, killing sin in my life, telling people about the gospel, making disciples, watching for the times, to know that when he comes, what do we want to do when he comes? What do we want to be caught doing at that moment? Because it's imminent. We don't know. And since that's the case... We don't have, as Christians, the luxury of just sloughing off a couple years to do whatever we want and come back to Jesus. We must be ever living like we're ready for his second coming. That's the way we live our lives. The Thessalonians were thinking that it's gonna happen any time now, so they're all quitting their jobs, they're digging their holes, they're building their caves, they're like, we're just waiting, we're not doing anything. And Paul writes to Thessalonians, get a job, work, eat. You wanna eat, gotta work. So for us, Get a job, earn money, take care of your family, give money to missions, make disciples, kill sin, live the life of everyday life, Christian living that glorifies him and do, be doing exactly what he wants you to do because that coming could happen at any particular time. That's really easy application for tomorrow, right? How do I study this? How, what does all this mean? Fig trees, what am I supposed to do? Live a life that glorifies Jesus every single day. Not for yourself. Now, verse 34 um, is probably the most controversial verse in these two chapters. Verse 34. So I am not going to take a lot of time on it. (laughs) So that's good, right? Um, I'm going to explain to you what I think it means and keep moving. If you have questions, you can ask me. Truly I say to you, this generation, that's one key problem, will not pass away until all these things, that's the other problem, take place. So let's take them in reverse order. All these things, people are all over the map. What does that mean? Is it this, is it that? I just think all these things literally means all these things. So I think it means everything we've been talking about, from like verse 3 all the way up here to verse 28, all the stuff he's been talking about, the coming, the destruction of the temple, all the stuff, the abomination of desolation in verse, chapter 15 and all these crazy words, all these things I think literally just means all these things. Problem solved. Keep moving. Next one is, this generation, for truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You're starting to see the problem, right? Because Jesus is talking to the first century, and they're like, this generation won't pass away until all these things take place. Well, the second coming didn't happen, and this generation, they're dead for like 2,000 years dead. And so, controversial, you know, everybody's freaking out. I think that this generation doesn't mean first century. Um, some people have said that word generation can also be translated race and so he's speaking to the Israelites and he's saying the Israelites as a whole will not pass away until the second coming there will be a preservation of the race of Israel that's not bad I can see the points on that I don't think that's it I think that the what it is is this generation is talking about he's he's saying these things are going to happen and he's saying and this generation that's alive at the second coming of Christ will not pass away until all these things happen. I just, it makes the most sense to me that it's talking about the generation that would be alive in whatever future sense that it happens. I'll give two quick reasons why I think that's the case and then I'm gonna keep going. Um, The first reason is that um, the all these things, he says you will not, in verse 33, when you see all these things, no one can see all those things except that generation. I, if I die tomorrow, I certainly won't see it. The only logical person that can see all these things, literally see all these things, is that future generation that's alive when the second coming happens. That just makes sense to me. The second one is this. Um, the parable in verse 32 points me to think that. When it says, from the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as it branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves. Jesus is saying that particular generation needs to learn its lesson. When it happens, it's going to happen in their particular generation. So I think 32 points us to be thinking in that particular time period and I think that generation that's alive at the actual fig tree blooming, that generation when the sun, sun comes, so that's, that's what I think. It's all over the place. Verse 35 is actually more important though. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying his words are God's words. They carry all the freight and all the power of God. So we should heed them. We should listen to them and let them penetrate deep into our soul and let them affect the way we live and, belie- and believe. So the big question is then, what do we do? We, be watch- we're, we should be watchful, we should be ready, and we should be faithful. We wait and we work Not work for salvation, but work for Christ. The applications here are the exact same as they are two weeks ago. Verse 13, endure, persevere, keep trusting Christ. Endure, persecution may come. Second application, verse 14, make disciples. Preach the gospel to people that don't know Jesus in whatever land that God is calling you to. And it could be the ends of the earth. We're going to go into a time of response here. And this is what I want you to do. Don't rush to the applications of verse 13 and 14. Instead, I want you to just picture this little phrase here in verse 30. Picture this phrase. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's going to happen and you and I are going to be there. Imagine the worship that's going to explode from your chest in those moments. Let's worship like that right now. So just take a few moments, think and pray and stand in whatever way the Lord's wired you right now to respond, respond this way. Picturing in your head, That the Son of Man is going to come with power on the clouds of heaven with great glory and great power. And let's give Him the glory that He deserves because this is who we're worshiping today. And also then. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your love and mercy. You're so kind to us and merciful and gracious. I pray that right now, as we look to worship You through song, that You would come and invade our hearts, and move, and cause us to focus on you, and that great day, where you will be lifted high, and that in these moments, we will worship you with the same vigor, with the same heartfelt love, as we will that one day. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.